Thank you for listening to audio from Glen Meadows Baptist Church. We hope it blesses you in your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you are not a current member of Glen Meadows, we encourage you to visit one of our services, Sundays at 9 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 6.30 p.m. So we are in a, I appreciate what Scott said about the church is not an institution. We're not. We are the body of Christ. We're not an institution as those people in the community are asking us to further their cause. We're not about that. God has already given us a cause. We're not here to just promote, what is it, uh, just a moralistic, a therapeutic uh, deism. We're not about that just to make sure people feel better. We are the body of Christ on earth. That's who we are. We, are, we have our marching orders from our commander-in-chief, and it is very unique and very distinct. And so each one of us bears this, and when we come together as the body, we are to do things according to the Scripture. The Scripture lays out very clearly what we do as a local church congregation that is autonomous. We're separate from any other group organization. Uh, we might be joined by same beliefs. We might be joined in mission efforts with other churches. But basically, when you join this church, you're not joining any other church. We are not uh, the church. We are a church, unique and distinct. There's no such thing as the Baptist church. It doesn't exist. We are a Baptist church, right? So that's who we are. So we together are to accomplish uh, the very goals of the Lord. And so the scripture gives us instructions on how we gather together and what we do. But we see that the Bible teaches, according to Philippians chapter 1, that there's two offices in the church, elder and deacon. And we're in a season in our church to where we're looking at uh, calling more deacons. And so next Sunday, we will have an opportunity, you'll have an opportunity as a member of Glen Meadows to nominate somebody that you think meets these qualifications that we're going to talk about today and we're going to talk about next Sunday. And so this is an incredible, exciting time for our church. And so next Sunday, there'll probably be a number that you can text and you can recommend an individual or you can uh, come to the office in between times or we'll probably have pieces of paper for you to write on, however you want. And then the deacons will get together and they'll look at those that got uh, several nominations and, and then they'll be vetted and then they'll be brought before you to ordain them as deacons. This is an office in the church. And so what I wanna do is I wanna look at this very clearly in 1 Timothy chapter 1. What is a deacon and why should we have them? And as I'm talking about this, I want you to realize that these qualifications apply to everyone. They really do. We all are to walk faithfully before the Lord. And before the traditional passage is first, it's either Acts chapter 6 or 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3. And, but before we get into the actual guidelines of the characteristics or the behavior or how they are to act and, uh, and to, in character, how they're to act, I want to look at what brings about that kind of action. And it's, it's really important that it becomes uh, a characteristic in our life that we are the ones that hold these things true. And so Paul is writing to Timothy. Some of you are studying 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus in Sunday school, and so this might be familiar to you. But as we look at this passage, the, the, the book is broken down. This is Paul writing to Timothy. Timothy was a son in the faith. He was someone that he was bringing along, and he was training him how to be a leader. And Timothy was a, mass, a great, incredible leader. He was in Ephesus. He's in Macedonia. He followed Paul. He was led to the Lord by Paul. Timothy calls him the father in the, his faith. And so Paul is writing back to Timothy saying, look, this is how you do church. This is how you do it. And so he starts off in the first, uh, the a typical introduction in chapter one, 
verse 1 through 2, and then in chapter 3 basically sets the main tone of the book, and that is fighting against false doctrines. In, in other words, there are things you're supposed to believe, and there are things you're to reject. You're to believe the things that God says, and you reject what man says. And when you get man's opinion mixed up with what God says, you're usually going to end up with some bad thoughts or bad beliefs or bad theology, even some heresy. And you all know that's bad. It's just wrong. I mean, why believe a lie? Why not go for the truth? No matter what the truth is, go for it. Now, let me ask you, do you have that commitment? Do you have that desire to know the truth? Or or do you just want to know things that will help you do your thing, help you in your way, help you in your passions and your desires. And, you know, a lot of people do that. They say, I'm going this way and, and I'm going to look for whatever affirms me so that I can keep going this way. And the whole time, it's a lie. It's just a lie. And so we see that in verses 3 through 11 where Paul is saying, look, man, uh, you got to believe the truth. And it, when you begin to believe a lie, it becomes a, a problem. Verse 5 says, now the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. In other words, good truth. And he says, some have deviated from these and turned aside to fruitless discussions. And they want to be teachers of the law, although they don't even understand what they're saying. And then he says, here's what happens. Their life becomes a shipwreck, their character. They begin to pursue bad things and live, say bad things and live with bad people. And then things just go down from there. But then we have Paul saying this. But there's something that happened to me. Paul is basing everything that goes on the church on these three things. What you believe, how you abide, and then how you are bearing fruit, or in other words, how you behave. I I didn't have another point to use another B, so we just kind of put two of them together. But believing, right? And abiding, and then bearing the fruit of that. And so you and I, we bear the fruit of what we believe. Everybody knows what you believe. Everybody knows what I believe. We really do. And they know that by how they see it come out in our words and our actions, our attitudes, and our life. But Paul is starting right here with what he believes. Verse 12, I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful appointing me to ministry. Now, that is a major head statement for the next two or three paragraphs. And here's what it is. How do you become the kind of person whom God calls faithful? How do you become the person that is considered faithful? And you say, I don't know about being faithful. Oh, yeah, you need to really consider being faithful. Because the opposite is unfaithful. There's a lot of scriptural warnings about being unfaithful, a lot of them. And what happens to the unfaithful servant at the very end? So at the end of times, when time is over, and and if you want to know when that is, go ahead and read the book. Are these the last times? It's a free book for you today as you go out to the counter or as you're picking up your kids going out. we'll, We'll hand each household, each household, a free book written by Dr. Ford, and it talks about the end times. And one of the pictures in the book deals with this great time of judgment. And it's talking about those that he says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. And then the others, he will say, uh, not so much, basically. It'll be summarized, not faithful. 
Also, there's there's, there's a couple of individuals, and I was looking at all the history of all the unfaithful people or the traitors in history, and how history begins to change when people are unfaithful in a very negative way. But but the, the supreme example is talking about one individual, and it's Matthew chapter 26, verse 23, and it says, Woe to the man through whom the Son of Man will be betrayed because of lack of faithfulness. And it's talking about Judas Iscariot, right? Very unfaithful individual, unfaithful to the truth. But how do you become the kind of man? How do you become the kind of woman that is considered faithful, which is a prize? Well, here it is. Paul says this, I give thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ who strengthened me because he considered me faithful and he appointed me to ministry. So he was appointed to ministry and we all are ministers of reconciliation. God has a ministry for every single one of us. Paul's happened to be an apostle. Yours happens to be whatever God calls you to, but it's because you're considered faithful, not unfaithful. And that is God. In this verse right here, it is God who strengthens you because of what he has done for us. So it's his strength in us making us faithful. Now watch this. Now he describes how he's faithful. And he starts off with realizing he doesn't deserve God's grace. He doesn't. You and I do not deserve God's grace. Look what Paul, the Apostle Paul, right? Here's what he says about himself. Listen to the kind of guy he is before he meets Christ. One who was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. Okay, a blasphemer is someone who takes what's true about God and twists it. I mean, he was a faithful Jew. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees, but he also took the view of God and twisted it in his life and in his teaching, and it's just very unfaithful. It's a bad guy, horrible guy. In fact, if you want to make God mad, lie about him, right? Just tell lies about him, and it makes God mad. So next, says... He, uh, he was a blasphemer, and then he was a persecutor, meaning he would go door to door, and he would kill those who follow Jesus. And worst of all, see what that says? Blasphemer, persecutor, then what? Uh, an arrogant man. Boy, that's a bad guy. I mean, you can, you can have all this stuff going for you, but if you're arrogant, if you're prideful, There's not any other way guaranteed for God to reject you than for you or for me to be arrogant or prideful. Because this is an individual that always thinks they're right and we're not. So he's bad. Since it was out of ignorance, here's what he's saying, that I had acted in unbelief, I received mercy. So the grace came not because he deserved it, but because God had mercy upon him. And then he says this, And the grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Let's break that down. So he was arrogant. He's a blasphemer. He's a persecutor. But then he says, God in his mercy poured his grace all over him. And the faith and love of the Lord Jesus just blanketed him. And God declared him as righteous. Here's what that means. Jesus' faithfulness. So on earth and the way he lived and then going to the cross and bearing the brunt of the sins of yours and mine and all humanity, and he did it out of love, his motivation and his action summed up and him being the one who bears the penalty of your sin, and then it's just poured out all on top of you. 
And then he says this. This is just a, this is really good. Verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So he's like summing this up. He's summing up this, what it means to be, to believe. And it says this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the chief of them. Wow. How, do you, how are you considered faithful before God? You understand how salvation takes place. You understand it. You understand that it doesn't start or originate or finish with you. It just doesn't. We receive it. We don't earn it. And there's no way we can. And here's what he says. <laughs> it's just a beautiful statement. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, I've even been at conferences where they've talked about how do you contextualize the gospel, make it palatable so people can, can, can understand it. And they've made statements like this, like, you know what, maybe use another word for sinner because people don't like to be called sinner. And I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't think I can do that. And the reason why is because as Paul, I think I, think I can say, I'm, I'm, I'm the worst guy in the room. I mean, because I know me. I don't know you. And I can't imagine any of you being as bad as me. I mean, some thoughts, anger. I mean, just vile things can come in my mind. I'm confident you couldn't be as bad as me. And I'm a sinner. And I'm assuming you may not be as bad as me. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, when it comes to, to being a sinner, I'm the president. I'm the chief. I'm the master. I'm the MVP of sinners is what he's saying. I got the trophy. And my trophy is evident. Look at all these people I killed. Look at how I lied about God. Look at all this. And he's saying this. This is the greatest statement worthy of full acceptance. Not partial, but full acceptance. The, the, whole, the whole thing, the whole buffet of all the theology centered around what we're about to say, it is worthy for you to accept this, that Jesus came to die for sinners. Do you know what that means? It's powerful. Incredible. Have, have, have we given much thought to the death of all deaths in the death of Christ? That when he died on the cross and he said it is finished, it was the wrath of God upon him for every single sin on earth. Now that's a death. That's an incredible death. A guy by the name of Zitzendorf, his actual name is Nicholas Ludwig Zinzendorf. He was born in 1700. He was a German guy, an amazing man. And we are told that he started this, this prayer vigil. He just got overwhelmed with the death of Christ, and we'll get to that in a second. He got overwhelmed with, with the image of the death of Christ, and he just said, we have to make all the maximum impact for Christ because we accept fully the death of Jesus. We accept it. And so here's what he did. He said, man, we just need to pray. I don't know what God's going to do, but we just got to pray. And so he started a prayer vigil. And that's just a campaign of prayer. And it lasted 24 hours a day. Have you ever prayed for 24 hours? I, I haven't. I probably should, but I don't think I have. But he started this 24 hours a day. He got his whole church together. There was about 300 of them. And they said, here's what we will do. If we don't do anything else, we will pray 24 hours a day as a church. And so one guy take 24 hours, another guy take 24 hours, or somebody take six, another guy take six, another guy, and they just did it. And you know how long they did this? A hundred years. 
documented, 100 years. This group, they, they became known as the Moravians. Have you ever heard of the Moravians? So being lit by the passion of the cross, he started this prayer vigil. And from this prayer vigil, man, it's, it's incredible. They sent over 300 missionaries in 65 years to West Indies, Greenland, Lapland. I have no idea where that is, but they went. Turkey and North America. So back in 1700, from 17, starting actually 1726 to 1826, they just sent out missionaries. And who knows, you may be a Christian today because they prayed. How about that? So here's how this all got started. So uh, uh, Zitzendorf, here's what he did. He, he goes to a museum after he's studying university, he takes a summer break, and he goes to this uh, museum, and it's in uh, Dusseldorf, and he sees this incredible painting by Dominican Fetti, and it's called Behold the Man. And he's, he's just looking around at these paintings. He's a Christian guy, and he sees this one painting that says Behold the Man. And it's a picture of Jesus. It's a painting, and he's got the thorns on his head and the blood coming down, nails in his hands and his feet and the blood is just dripping. And the caption at the bottom is very clear. It says this, um, I have done this for you. What have you done for me? And Zissendorf was just mesmerized, just looking at that. And he's as if, as if he could hear the pain talking to him. He said, I've done this for you. What have you done for me? Now I realize that <clears throat> Sometimes it's a gut shot or hitting below the belt or unfair statement to say, Jesus did all this, now what have you done? It's hard to compare, right? I mean, it's kind of, a, it's, it's kind of like a dirty shot that preachers can do sometimes. I realize that because, because I'm thinking, man, nobody can live up to that. But really, let's think about it. What have we done for him? What, I mean, can you, can you make a list? Can you, can you say, not, not that you're bragging, just, and the reason this is asked, the reason I'm willing to even go, to go here is because of this. When I ask that question of me, I, I, you know, that I, start, I start thinking many thoughts, but I come all the way back down to this. Do I fully understand, do I have full acceptance of Jesus Christ being crucified for sinners like me, of whom I'm the chief? Do I really grasp what this means? That he gave his life for me, not just so that I get to heaven, but so that my whole life would be changed on earth. My whole character would be changed. And so Paul is saying this, I'm the chief of sinners, I did all these bad things, but man, when I understood Jesus, full acceptance, that he came into the world to die for sinners like me, that changed everything. Let me ask you this question. This is the real question. Have you accepted it fully? And has your life changed? I mean, have you looked to Jesus to fully grab it? A couple of the followers in this group called the Moravian Brethren, one of, the, one of my favorite stories uh, in history of, of missions was there, there was a man that actually owned an island that grew cane, sugar cane. And what he would do is he would buy 
criminals. You could do this at that time. You could buy criminals and who had a life sentence. You could move them to the island, and they would work the island as slaves, and it's a way of, that, that the government wouldn't have to keep criminals, but they would sell them to these, these tyrant masters, and they kept them on the island never to leave. And this uh, criminal owner or slave owner, he had an edict, and it was this. The name of Jesus will not be named on this island. There will be no preachers. We won't let any church visits whatsoever. In fact, if somebody is shipwrecked and they come this direction and they land on our island, we will keep them separate because we don't want any quote, we don't want any of their nonsense to come across to our criminals or our slaves. And so there's no way to reach them. And yet two Moravian boys in their late teens, early 20s, they heard about this and they're like, these, these people will never hear about Jesus, ever. We can't go to them. What are we going to do? And so you know what they did? They sold themselves into slavery to this tyrant landowner so that they could be among them. And as they're leaving the docks and as the ship is, 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 is the gap between the dock and the ship is moving away, and actually, here's what they did. They took all their worldly things and they threw them in the ocean. And, and all their things were just kind of curling around the piers as they're leaving. And the family and friends, as you can imagine, is weeping, saying, we'll never see these guys again. And you know what they said? They said this. They said, here's what we want to do. And they, they locked arms like this, elbow and elbow, and they began to say, may the lamb that was slain may we win the reward of his suffering. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. So when Paul says this, that Jesus came to earth to save sinners like me, then it's this potential power of mercy and grace and forgiveness for all eternity, but what is lacking is for people to understand the fullness and to share the message. And the reason we do, primarily, not only because it happened in history, but because you experience it. Watch what Paul says. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am, whom I am chief, Verse 16, but I received mercy because of this, so that in time the worst of them, Christ Jesus may demonstrate the utmost patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. In other words, he's saying this, God saved me because I saw what the cross was all about and that my change in my life would be a perfect demonstration of God's love. He says it in the book of Ephesians as this, he says, so that we would be the trophies of God's grace so that we would be the light in the world. We would be literally shining the light on a hill. So what we know about Jesus and we understand the cross and the crucifixion, it radically changes us. And we not only do we believe Christ for salvation, but we believe Christ for impact in the world. It goes hand in hand. I remember a vacation Bible school. <laughs> I'll never forget this. This little, we, we do a gospel presentation of what Jesus did for us and a little girl, I think she's nine years old, she responds. That was the age I was when I first responded to the gospel. And we go outside and we're with all the other kids, but we kind of singled off and we talked to each one. And we went through this little track and it basically says, since you've done this and you received Jesus, your Lord and Savior, and you know the gospel, we went through it. I said, these things are true. Could you read these things? And the first line says, I am now a Christian. 
She said, is that true? I said, that's true. The next line, all your sins are forgiven. She says, is that true? I said, it's so true. And then it, it talked to, and you can talk to him anytime you want. I can talk to God anytime. I mean, it's like all this, this rush of all this truth was coming in and filling all the gaps in this girl's heart of all the things she ever wondered. And right there, right on that little sidewalk, it's just all rushing in. And then once we got through, she said, that's incredible. And I said, yes, it is. And then she looked at Knickerbocker with all the cars going by. And you know what she said? What about them? And I said, honey, you got it. What about them? What's it take to be considered a faithful servant? Full acceptance that Jesus came into the world to die for sinners. Believing it, not only believing it, but verse 18, it's abiding in it. Timothy, my child, I'm giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you. Okay, so this is a time when Paul is raising up Timothy and he's pouring the word of God into him. And he's, the, the prophecies are being made known. We see this in, in 1 Timothy, what he's talking about, the prophecies, the very word of God. And he's saying this, he's saying, uh, so that by them you may strongly engage in battle. Brother, you know what that is? Sister, listen to me. This is you being considered a faithful servant and you're stepping up into the battle. So Jesus coming and dying on earth is, is, is the greatest truth in the world that the enemy doesn't want anybody to know. Do you know that? So if you are a faithful servant, you are an enemy of the enemy. He is after you. He doesn't want you to be engaged. He doesn't want you to abide. He doesn't want you to be a part he wants you to feel distant. He wants, you, uh, he, he wants there to be division and conflict that makes us feel isolated and we're losing the battle. And Paul is saying, Timothy, listen, engage in the battle with the prophecies that you know, not based upon how you feel, not based upon your intellect, but based upon the very word of God, knowing it and living it is what he's saying. And this is an incredible Challenge for you and for me. Verse 19, having faith and a good conscience. And watch this. Some have rejected these and have suffered the shipwreck of their faith. Now, what is these? The prophecies. They've rejected the Word of God. They've neglected the Word of God. They've, 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 they've ignored the Word of God. And because of that, he says, they have shipwrecked their life. Sometimes when... Uh, I'm wanting just to download and just kind of chill. I'll watch some YouTube. And when th I'll watch some of these things like great fails, you know, watching people fall and bust their head. I don't know what's just kind of funny. They're okay. They're okay. But then but last night, you know what I was watching? I, I come across some, and it was these massive ships in these massive waves and just watching them go and they get toppled, toppled. And then I remember seeing several of them that get shipwrecked to where they literally break apart on, on, on a sandbar or on a rock. And I'm like, oh no, I'd hate to be there. I, I would hate to be in a cabin. I mean, because actually if I'm on a ship and it's tossing and turning, I'm finding a closet and I'm just camping out, man. That's what I'm doing. But it breaks apart and it sinks. You ever seen a life that's been shipwrecked? It's sad. It's so sad. I mean, nothing you can do. 
It's out in the middle of nowhere. Or it's busted apart and it's falling apart. And the carnage is there for the taking of the sea creatures or the air creatures or whatever. So here's what he's saying. He's talking about people like me who were like you, who started off good and yet somehow in the future you, you derail. And, and you derail because you leave the prophecies, you leave the word. And next thing you know, your life will be shipwrecked. This isn't a doomsday message, but listen to me. If you leave the abiding in Christ and all that belongs there, there's a very good chance your life will be shipwrecked. It just happens like that. Because this, this Jesus is the Savior. He is the life jacket, the life vest. He's the life vessel. And when you stay connected in Jesus, then you are warding off, you are guarding off all the things of the enemy and the fiery darts and the, the attacks that come, and you are staying faithful to the Word of God. And that's exactly where we should be. In fact, we're not the only ones, but we look at it, we just see, what, what does it mean to abide? What do I do daily to abide? And we, we break it up into the teachings of Jesus, and we use the acronym POWERFUL. Prayerfully dependent, obedient to the kingdom agenda, in the word, right? Exaltation. Relationships, right? That are full of integrity. And all of those things are here. You talk about prayer. He, he, well, let's just keep going. Well, he names a couple guys, verse 20. Uh, Hamanius. If you're having a baby, don't name him that. I'm just saying. Hamanius. Alexander, not a bad name. Are among them. And I have delivered them over to Satan so that they may not be taught to blaspheme. And then look at this, verse 1, chapter 2. First of all then, I urge you that petitions, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for everyone. Here's what he's saying, prayerfully dependent. Brother and sister, to be considered faithful, be prayerfully dependent. Obedient to the kingdom agenda, it's all in here. Joining in what the king says. Uh, exalting the father, look at how he breaks into, prayer, into praise in verse 17. He talks about him being saved, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And then all of a sudden in verse 17, he says, Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He just breaks out in a benediction right in the middle of the letter because he just can't contain himself. He understands the full acceptation of Jesus dying on the cross, and he can't do anything except just start praising the Lord. And then he also says in chapter 2, man, why don't you just raise holy hands to the Lord? You ever see somebody do that in church? And you're going, man, I hope they wore deodorant. Maybe that's not what you're thinking. Or maybe you're thinking, what's going on here? Why are they doing that? Why do you raise holy hands? It's just a traditional symbol. Sometimes we do things like this, like, Lord, I just surrender. Um, sometimes we just say like this, Lord, yours is the victory. Or, Lord, I receive what I'm hearing, what I'm, the words that I'm singing. And it's just an outward expression of an inward reality. Most of the time, I, I worship with just my hands in my pocket. I mean, I just do. Or I might just be going, man, pound that in my heart, Lord. That verse, that line right there, I want that right there. An outward sign. You know what? Uh, I'm, uh, I don't think it's wrong to be emotional in church, do you? I hope not. I'm not going to start crying on you right now. I might later. But we're against emotionalism. 
Emotionalism is that we try to stir up emotions so that we can try to determine whether we're really worshiping or not. No, that's junk. But when you are moved in worship by understanding what Christ and the full acceptation that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners like me, of whom I'm the worst, I can't help but do what Paul did, and I'm just going to break out and say, the King eternal and immortal and all glory to you, the kingdom come for now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Look at what he's done. And when that drives deep down inside your soul and it actually can become emotional, then you're ready to do something about it. So exalting the Father, prayer, obedience, the word, exaltation, relationships. And then he gets right into relationships. And then he tells, instructs men and women, there it is in verse 8, how to live with one another and so that all relationships are full of integrity and full of honor and God is blessed above all. And so we are to be those kinds of people. Now let me ask you this. In light of Jesus dying and bleeding and giving his life for you, Leaving heaven, becoming a man, taking your blows. And Jesus saying, I mean, to quote that painting, since I've done all this for you, what are you doing for me? Tough question. Have you accepted the message of the cross fully? That Jesus came into the world to die for sinners like you and me. If so, then believe. Step out in faith. Live as though it's actually true because it is. And when you live as though it actually is true, it changes everything. Steel chains can't hold you down. Nothing in this world is worth living for when you know Jesus. Man, take a look at him. Jump on his ship. Go on his course. He will never leave you nor forsake you. You may be here today and you say, I've never given my life to Christ. I've never considered fully what he's done for me. Do it now. I, I beg you, do it now. The greatest decision you will ever make is receiving this statement. Jesus came into the world to die for sinners like me. Receive him. Thank you again for listening to audio from Pastor Mac Roller at Glenmeadows Baptist Church. For previous sermons and more information, please check out our website at gmbc.org.